Well, let's pray. God, we come to you in the middle of the week and we ask that you would unite our hearts from the many things that call for our attention, things that would just pull us in different directions and fragment our thoughts and hearts. We pray that the realities that belong to you alone, those great realities that capture our thoughts and our desires, that those would be the things that would have our attention now, that we would willfully turn toward you as a people, not just as individuals, that we would give you our full cooperation. We pray that you would stir our hearts with the thought of what might be when the living God gives mortals, mere mortals, access to the highest courts so that we can speak with you by faith through the finished work of your son, that we can have an introduction to you and to before you to lay our needs and the needs of our loved ones, the needs of our church, our town, our world. We are a needy people. We are ever dependent on you for every single thing that regards life. But it's the spiritual things, Father, that we see that we are so incapable of doing. The task that you've given us to be a people who believe and follow and love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength to be people that love our neighbors as we love ourselves, whether they're easy to love or not, to even love our enemies and those who blindly rage against you in pity to bring them the truth in the same way you brought us truth. God, we pray that you would give us all that we need to do that as individuals, as a part of our families, workplace, our neighborhoods, our church. We pray that you would make us to be a very clear, bright testimony to the sufficiency, to the extraordinary, great worth of Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you would teach us how to pray and teach us to pray. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Well, I'd hope to have a handout for you tonight to go along with last, um, the last handout I gave you. In fact, I combined them into one, and then our printer continued to jam. So I'm going to have to figure out a, way, a different way to get it to you. But I will get it to you, and we'll, we'll put it in the email. And so if you have a printer at home, you can print your own. We've been talking about um, prayer, and you remember last time we discussed that wonderful reality of following Christ in his prayer life by following other prayers, other statements about prayer that describe the kind of prayer life that pleases the Lord because Christ pleased the Father perfectly. So that means that every command or every pattern that God gives us in Scripture for prayer, we can see that as an indirect you know, reflection of what Christ's prayer life would have been like. We just took two of the verses from Psalm, from Psalm 119, where he talked about anticipating the dawn and the evening, the night watches. So you remember the, the word there that sometimes in, in the King James is called uh, 
the translation is prevent, to prevent the night watches. And you think, well, what, what does that mean? To, to not let the night watches happen? But New American Standard translates the first idea as rising at the dawn. But anticipate is a, probably a better word. The idea is that the thought of meeting God first makes us rise a little earlier than we would have to go meet this person. And the thought of meeting him last makes us stay up a little longer because we know there will be some time where it will be just you and him. But now we want to shift in our last look at the prayer life of Christ. And this is not really meant to be a, uh, any kind of a thorough look at Christ's prayer life, but really just preparing us. You remember the, the overarching theme that we're in is, um, this is kind of one of those subpoints of subpoints. So if you've forgotten the overarching theme, you're not to be blamed. We're talking about following Christ. How can a person in our day be discipled by Christ? Is that still possible, though he's not here? And if we're to be taught by Christ how to follow him or how to imitate him in those fundamentals, in the same way that he has taught believers down through the centuries, you know, what is our part in that? And one of the great steps forward is to realize that we will be walking the same moral path that Christ walked, different specific tasks, of course, but same moral path. So the illustration we've had is that he hands us a map, the moral law of God, what is pleasing to God, avoiding what is displeasing to God. And on this map, this ancient map, the very map he used, there are a lot of added notes from our Savior, from the New Testament writers. But it is the same fundamental right and wrong in order to walk that path, and it not just to be a good intention, in order for it to move from a beautiful concept that the Christian life is a life that follows Christ morally, and we're being transformed into the image of Christ morally, like Second Corinthians says, to move from beautiful concepts down into very real practical changes that honor and please our God, well, we're going to have to do that together. And together, we're going to have to respond to the word of God and to the access to prayer, the access we have to God in the same way Christ did. In other words, you're going to have to follow Jesus in the way he responded to scripture before you ever follow Christ in obeying those scriptures. And you're going to have to follow Christ in the way he prayed if, you're, if you are ever to really follow Christ in the way he obeyed. It's simply uh, impossible for a person to neglect the word and to neglect prayer and then hope at the end of the process that we'll still be able to do the right things and to avoid the wrong things. So that's kind of the big picture. And we've been looking quickly at the life of Christ as a prayer. And now we come to this last glimpse. And I want us to consider Christ as one who interceded or who brought other people in his prayer time to the throne of his father and pleaded their cause with God. So intercessory prayer, praying for other people. Now I want us to get just some general points about intercessory prayer and then I'm going to 
tell you about the handout you didn't get, all right? And then give you a few examples. So let's get some kind of basic things about following Christ as a prayer and then some specific things that are unique to following Christ as an intercessory prayer, as someone who prayed for someone else. All right, so basics again. Number one, Jesus interceded. He prayed for other people, not merely feeling his own need for the Father as a true human, not living out the Christian life or or the life of a believer by leaning on his deity, but rather by depending upon God, doing the will of the Father, by that constant aid of the Spirit. So as a true man, Christ felt need. And we mentioned that he also delighted in the sympathy, in that perfect understanding the Father had of him. And, you know, lovers love to be together. And so Christ rises early and stays up late and, you know, prays without ceasing. But there is also this issue of praying for other people. And he does pray for other people. We see that clearly. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot merely be a person who prays because you feel your need for God and you delight in communion with God. It has to go beyond your personal needs. It has to touch others. Or you're not following the pattern of Christ. Second, to imitate Jesus as an intercessor, as a person who prays for other people, as we talked about last week, it's not enough to start with the how did he pray for other people, but you have to go back a little further. Why did he pray for other people? And so again, we come back to that whole issue, that amazing mystery that the God-man has in embracing the work of salvation. He has willingly laid aside his glory and the constant use of his divine attributes. So as a holy, perfect, sinless human, the task the Father gave him to do must be done. And he feels his need As he ministers to other people, he pours out his heart in prayer for them, knowing that his efforts will not bear lasting fruit if it is not by the hand of God, particularly the Spirit working through him. So feeling a love for the people he's serving, feeling that awareness that his task must be done, and it must be done just as the Father said, He knows that he is dependent on the Father to work through him. And so he pleads for others as he serves them. I think it is so refreshing to see in the life of the one human who perfectly understood the sovereignty of God as God the Son. He understands the sovereignty of God. And yet... The one who understands the sovereignty of God never uses the Father's sovereign choices or, you know, the, what the theologians call that inter-Trinitarian counsel, Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past, you know, in the timelessness of God, delighting, determining to rescue for his great namesake those who were his enemies or who would be his enemies. 
The son is aware of that. And he knows that what the father has determined, what he is doing, what the spirit is applying, that it will result in all that, the, that God desires to see done. There, there's no chance in Jesus' understanding, there's no chance that what the father desires to be accomplished might not be accomplished. When he goes to the cross, he will receive the reward of his suffering. It's not if, if we believe later, you know, if, if the right kind of preachers go out. And yet the son is also perfectly aware that the, that the determinations and the decrees of God aren't just related to the end product, the rescue of his people, the transformation into the image of Christ, of people that are so common. It includes every tool that God delights to use between the choice and the accomplishment of it. So the son must do every single thing the father gives him to do. And as a true man, he must do that depending. And that means he will need the work of the father and the people he is serving will need the work of the father. It is critical for us as we begin to study our Bibles and we see that God is bigger than we thought he was, that God is the beginning of the great rescue, that God is the ultimate goal of the great rescue, and God is, is in every aspect in between those. It's critical that the character of God, as we get to know him, would alter how we pray because who it is you're talking to changes how you talk. And when we come to that great reality that God is fundamentally, essentially, without any effort, sovereign, that his authority is absolute, and all his perfect, morally perfect will, it will be accomplished. The realization of that ought to affect how you pray. Uh, last week ago, not, not, so not yesterday, Tuesday, but a week before that, there's a meeting that we have every other Tuesday here at the church with a number of ministers from Pontotoc and some from Smithville and then some of our own guys. Uh, and we're working through the doctrines that, that have to do with our redemption. And we, we looked at the issue of um, the effectual call, that God draws and calls us, you know, out of the spiritual grave. We are indifferent and God's voice comes with the sermon you know, and, a, and the preacher that never interested us really ever before, suddenly what he says, it's, you know, you can't escape it. And God makes it effective. And so that's a wonderful reality. And that, you know, really is closely aligned with God's sovereignty. So what I asked the men was this. How many of you, when you very first considered preaching the gospel, were clear on the sexual call that God must call. God must draw and entice people or they won't respond. None of them. All of us started with views that, you know, really it was if we were clever enough, if we were convincing enough, we could persuade people to come out of a grave and embrace a king, giving him everything, even though they couldn't see and touch him. So we all started you know, with, with very inadequate views of God's sovereignty. And I said, well, now, how many of you believe this now? And well, all of them believed it now. 
So there's been a great trans, transition there from thinking that God is not really very sovereign to God is sovereign. And then here was our third question. How has it changed your prayer life? Has it made you fatalistic? We wouldn't say that. But have you, been, have you believed the lie that the enemy hands you when he says, well, you do know that God is sovereign, right? I mean, you had silly views back then, but God is sovereign. So, so you just give out the truth, and then he does what he wants with it. And the, the pleading, that's, that's kind of, that's immature theologically. You don't have to do that as a church, as a preacher. Or has the realization that God is sovereign fueled your prayer life? Because you do have to think about the other side. If God has no right to do his good pleasure, why are we asking him to do his good pleasure? Why are we pleading with God ever if God would then have to go get permission from humanity before he acts? So it is because we believe that God is king, that he's God, that we cry out to him and not to someone sitting next to us. But has the sovereignty of God caused you to be fatalistic in your prayer life for others or has it fueled your prayer life for others? Have you been gripped by the awareness that if God really is sovereign and you really have access to him, and he has given you tasks to do at home, at church, at work, in the world. There's no reason to be, to be paralyzed by the thought, well, but, but, you know, oh, you know, I, I can't do this on my own. But you are, you are not on your own, believer. In Christ, access to the throne, it ought to so captivate you that the sovereign God who saved you and loved you from eternity past and that's a great mystery, and it's not the mystery that we think that I'm talking about, like, well, how can God choose from... The mystery is, why does he love us at all? That God has also sovereignly chosen you for a life of amazingly, everlastingly valuable service. That the things you do for Christ now matter forever. Or as Ephesians says, that he saved us by grace, not by works, and he chose us for good works so that we would do those. God has, for every believer, such a life before us that it really is worth getting out of bed and to do what he's given us to do. But that task, which must be done, cannot be done on our own. And especially when you think of trying to help people next to you, trying to help people you work with, you go to school with, people in your home, and you, you talk and you talk and you talk and you try to be a good witness by your life and your attitudes, and it just seems like, you know, you're shooting a rhinoceros with a pea shooter, and it, all it does is aggravate them. We realize I need access to someone who is stronger than me. I need access to someone who has the right to speak to these people in a way that is irresistible. So, the awareness of God's sovereignty ought to fuel intercessory prayer rather than replace 
it. Another point about intercessory prayer or prayer in general. In following Jesus' pattern for intercession, we do have two resources for looking at him. And we talked about this before when it came to scripture, so I won't spend a long time on it. There is the direct look at Christ. So his specific commands about prayer. Matthew 6 is such a perfect, of course, perfectly balanced description of what things ought to fill the heart as we approach the throne and how we ought to express those. But also you have the example of Christ, his praying and when he prayed and what he prayed. Think of John chapter 17, the great intercessory prayer. It is the most astonishing opportunity for you to sneak in the back room of of the prayer room of the Son of God, pleading with the Father before the crucifixion for his people. What does he ask? What are his motivations? What are the arguments he lays before the Father? But I hope that we'll be able to study John 17 together as a church in coming days, maybe in a small group uh, setting. So I don't want to spend the time on that tonight. So there's the direct look. But again, if you look at the life of Jesus Christ and you know that he prayed without ceasing, you have very little direct information about how Jesus Christ prayed. There is no chapter in the Bible called Jesus's prayer for the lost. And then another chapter, Jesus's prayer for the baby Christian, Jesus's prayer for the stumbling Christian, Christ's prayer for the aging Christian. How Jesus dealt with unanswered prayer, how how Christ felt about delayed answers to prayer. So since the Bible doesn't give you that, do you fear that you don't have enough to follow Christ in the way he prayed? I don't mean this. Do you fear that you don't have enough to pray? Well, we say, well, no, the Lord will help me and I have the Bible. But no, I'm, I mean, could you actually follow Christ's pattern of prayer? And Again, there's that indirect glance. Looking at the commands of Scripture about how to pray and knowing our Lord perfectly fulfilled every one of those commands, then you see his footprints in those commands in the path, even though the Gospels don't give you every detail. And this is wonderfully, I think so wonderfully, given to us also in the prayers of others who were imitating Christ. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, who twice says to churches, imitate me, I'm imitating Christ. Okay? So Paul comes and preaches the gospel. You're hearing about the Savior. You're hearing about your sin. You embrace this hope. And then you think, now what? How how do I live? How do I show my love for this God? And And of course, there's the scriptures, there's the Old Testament Bible that they would have had access to. But then you also had the life of Paul. And over and over, Paul says, you remember how we lived among you for your sake. And you imitated us, 1 Thessalonians 1. And when you imitated us, you were also imitating Christ. Because I'm imitating Christ. And that pattern spread throughout the region. Other churches imitated you. So we talked about that weeks ago, and that's the, that's the wonderful organic way the kingdom spreads. So think about that when it comes to prayer. 
And you say, but we don't, ha- we don't have examples, a lot of examples of Paul saying, well, this is how I pray, by the way. They might have seen it, but, but we didn't get to see it. But you do have the prayers of Paul so frequently. There's 50 plus, depending on how you count them, prayers of Paul in the New Testament in his letters. Now, on the sheet that I want to send you in the mail and then hopefully have printed for you Sunday, I have chosen um, those, a selection which basically hit every major point because there's a lot of repetition. For example, when Paul prays at the beginning of those letters, may the grace of the Lord and the peace of God be with you. So I haven't put every time it mentions that. So some of those prayers do have, do kind of duplicate what was prayed at other places. So the list is not exhaustive, but it contains all the major points and you can use that for your own praying. If Paul is following Jesus Christ and we can imitate Christ, if we imitate Paul and you see the prayers that God guided Paul to write and to be preserved for you, then when you read those prayers for other people, you have an indirect look at how Jesus would have you pray right now. How do I follow Christ in prayer right now? Well, Paul was following Christ, and he prayed these things, and he gave them to you to pray. So we can look at those, and and I'll, I'll point out those in a minute. Now, that means it's, there's great news. There is no reason for any Christian to say that we do not have enough material to know how to pray like Christ would have us pray or like Christ prayed. Well, there are some unique issues when it comes to praying for other people, and I want to hit those because if, if we don't kind of face them squarely, I think that intercessory prayer can be kind of rough. Number one, so here are issues about, um, about the issue of praying for other people. I think that intercessory prayer is, in some ways, the easiest of prayers. When there is someone that you care about who is in a desperate situation, it doesn't take much effort to cry out to the Lord if you're a Christian. So you pray. It would be much harder if someone came alongside you and said, you know, actually, I don't think it's right for you to pray for that person that you love. So don't pray. I mean, that would be the difficult thing. So in some ways, it's natural and it's easy. But in other ways, I think that praying for other people, it has a number of unique elements that make it, in some ways, the most difficult of praying. So just for example, you are adding to this whole issue of prayer, of talking, you talking to the living God, you're adding the complexity of another person's life and what's going on and where they're at spiritually and all their needs and which of us really understands that perfectly. So when you're praying for someone else and if you're not just running through a list of names, God helps so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so today. If you're really praying for a person, I mean, there's a lot of complexity in the human life. And you think, I'm not sure exactly what, what's right to pray in this situation. There is the question, therefore, of God's will. 
I'm supposed to pray according to God's will. I'm coming in the name of Christ. My prayers need to be a reflection of Christ's desires. I want to be in harmony with the king when I plead with the king. But I'm not sure I know what the king's will is in a specific situation of a person I'm praying for. So we do have a general idea of the ultimate end, you know, the honor of God. And we pray that would be through the good done to that soul and not, not through the judgment of that soul. So we, we, again, we face this complex question of, so how do I pray in light of the honor of God? Maybe I'm mistaken. You know, certainly my understanding is very limited. So it can be confusing how to pray for other people. And then that becomes, I think, more difficult when you do make a real attempt to plead on behalf of someone else before the Lord, and there is what appears, uh, what Amy Carmichael called the age-long minute. It just seems that God doesn't respond, and you, you begin to question, is he delaying because there's something better he would give? Well, that certainly makes sense. God knows better than us. Is he saying to my request, no, you're totally confused. What you're asking for, I will not give. And we say, well, he has the right to do that. But how am I misunderstanding scripture if God is saying, "This this is absolutely wrong to ask? And how can I understand the Bible if I'm misunderstanding it now and God is not responding because I'm asking for all the wrong things? Then another question you know, am I asking in the wrong way? Am I, is my own heart clinging to favorite sins so that God isn't answering or apparently God isn't acting based on any of my intercessory prayers for these people? And it's gone on for such a long time that maybe it seems to me that there might be something wrong with me. And if someone else had been praying these prayers, you know, well, God surely would have done something by now. But we think, well, but maybe it's me. After all, Isaiah does warn the people that these sins that they knowingly protect and treasure in their hearts, they are the reason God appears to have a dull ear. He's hard of hearing and a short arm. He can't really do much. So if God seems to be hard of hearing and not able to do much in response to your intercessory prayer, is it because you are clinging to known sin? Well, all of those things face, I think, every earnest Christian who prays for other people. And so every other Christian has been there or will be there at different points. And the Lord will teach you how to answer those things biblically. But it's not a quick, easy answer. There also, in, in praying for other people, there, is always, there are always these two unwanted companions. I don't know a better name than companions. I think of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and pilgrims walking along. And, you know, most of the book, other people are joining him on the path for a while and then, you know, they go off. But he doesn't really want them there because they're not interested in the same thing he's interested in. They're really not headed to see Christ. They're just religious or just moral. 
So Bunyan paints these pictures of people that appear to be pretty serious about Jesus, but really have no interest in Jesus. And they're these unwanted companions. But think of the unwanted companions that will follow you until you see Christ face to face. No matter how he works in your heart, there will always be, you know, on the, on the edge of your heart, pride and unbelief. Now, you don't have to let them walk with you, but they are always showing up when we don't want them. And they kill all real praying for anyone else. So pride says this. I think this person has a problem. And I think that if I try hard enough, I can fix it. So I'm going to shoot up a, a little prayer. You know, Lord, I just pray for so-and-so and just pray that, you know, when we have our talk, you just use it and amen. And then that's it. And the rest of the time, all the energy is focused on how am I going to fix this person? We do this medically. I told you last week. Uh, actually, I finally went and saw somebody that was a professional. Last week, I, my back, top of my back, I had a pulled muscle. It was actually a rib that was messed up. So I thought for four days, I can handle this. Misty, Sarah, Bambi, Sandy. I started getting a lot of texts saying, why don't you go to someone professional? And my answer in my heart is, my answer on my text is, thank you. My answer in my heart is, I can handle it. And like, I'll, I'll do it. You'll see. So I tried stretches. I ate, you know, ibuprofen like it was Skittles. And, and I laid this way and that. And nothing got better. As long as John Snyder thought that it's not so bad, you have to actually go to a professional. I didn't go to a professional. When it got to the point when I thought, I'm not able to fix it, then I took their advice seriously. In the spiritual realm, it's the same way. As long as you think that you can give someone a Puritan book and that'll fix their marriage or fix their kids or fix their church or fix their thought life or fix their attitudes. And God may very well use a good Puritan book. But if you hope in what you say, or in the book, or in the podcast, or in the sermon you heard last week online, if you just listen to this, if your hope is in that, you will notice that you do not plead at the throne for them. Quick prayer, a lot of emphasis on getting the right thing into their hand. I think a more biblical picture, of course, we see it in the life of the apostles in Christ, is truth and life carefully chosen words? Yes. But pleading, talking to God about them as much as we're talking to them about God. Pride. I think I can fix this one. So prayer's pretty short. Unbelief says, I just don't think that God either is able or willing to help a person when I pray for them. So why waste the time? I shoot up a quick, you know, prayer so that I don't look like an atheist. I say, God, please help them. You know, they really need your help. And uh, I'm going to go talk to them today. So you might put it on the little prayer thing and say, hey, guys, pray. I'm going to be talking to somebody today. And, but there's no real pleading, no wrestling 
with your own unbelief at the throne of Christ, no wrestling with Christ, no praying through a matter, because you think, well, the book might work, but God never answers my prayer like that. That just doesn't work for me. So those two together cripple prayer. Now, there is, let's go back to the issue of God's sovereignty. There is an excuse that creeps up and you know, when praying for other people, and that is, I don't know what God sovereignly intends to do in this situation, therefore I don't pray. But that, I believe, is almost always a smokescreen. Maybe always. When it comes to intercessory prayer, pleading for someone else who is needy, if the need is great, if your awareness of that is great, and your awareness of God's ability and willingness, you know, in general, and how he's done it for other people, if that is clear, then you will, you will not let any theological question that you're not really able to answer, I don't understand how prayer works with sovereignty. So who cares? I mean, if the truth is, if the need is small, then questions like that, they're like a, a barred door. We just think, ah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. So I'm not going to pray. But when the need is great and the confidence in him is great, there can be a lot of theological questions that you don't have an answer for. And your attitude is, we'll talk about those later. I've got to talk to him about this. And I want to give you a few biblical examples in an ascending kind of, you know, ever greater degree of boldness. So if you have your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. You are already familiar with these accounts, but I want you to think about how they are a rebuke to us when we say, well, I'm not sure about the doctrine of sovereignty and this and that, or I'm not sure exactly how to say this just right. And we are, this hurdle becomes, you know, it's enough to turn us back. Something's wrong when that's the case. So in Mark chapter five and verse 21, it says, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hand on her so that she will get well and live. Now that's a great picture for prayer, but that is not the one I'm interested in. But let's just look. His daughter is dying. No other doctor is an option at this point, or he would already be there with the daughter. It is this Jesus of Nazareth who heals people or nobody at this point. And this synagogue official falls in the dirt and begs. Well, it says in verse 24 that he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Everybody wants to see the miracle. A woman, here's the one I want us to look at, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands 
of many physicians. Can you imagine the kind of pre-scientific medicine practices for dealing with a woman who's internally bleeding and she can't stop? What kind of procedures did they try in that day to say, well, maybe we heard this would work. And so she has suffered greatly at the hands of doctors who are trying to make it better. And she had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, do you know of any other account of Christ healing a woman who's internally hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging for years? There is no other account that we know of. So it's not like someone came to her and said, there's a godly prophet who heals people just like you. She doesn't need that. She doesn't have to be assured. She just knows he has done amazing things for other people. And so, hearing that, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had proceeded from him and had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to Jesus, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, what I want you to notice is this. If you apply it to going to Christ with needs, the needs of others. We're not talking about forcing, twisting God's arm. And if we do it really well, that we're guaranteed that whatever we ask, it'll be done. But this woman kills our excuses when we say things like this. I, I don't know if what, what God would do for a person like this. I'm not even sure if he is willing to help a person like this. And I'm not sure how to pray for a person like this. Well, this woman wasn't sure either. But what she was sure of was what? No human doctor was of any help. It made things much worse. She had no more money to even try. But this Jesus had done great things for others. Maybe he would do great things for her. And she comes behind and pushes through the crowd and grabs his clothing. She doesn't have a chapter in the Old Testament that says... When the Messiah comes, people will push through crowds and grab clothing. And that's how they'll be healed. It is all based on the, the fundamental need and hope. Not much more assurance than that. Second example, the two blind men in Mark chapter 10. Again, here's a situation where they cry out for help and... There are a lot of things that kind of stand in the way between their pleading and their getting, and they just don't seem to notice all the reasons not to cry out. And it's a great pattern for us. Look at verse 46, Mark chapter 10. Then they came to Jer Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, 
a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So obviously he's heard that Christ is coming this way. When he had heard it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man and said to him, uh, sorry, I, I missed verse 48, a key verse. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And you know that Christ healed him. But again, as, an, as a lesson for prayers, this man isn't, he has no reason to think that Jesus heals blind people who scream at him as he walks by in, the, in a giant crowd headed to do something important. And this man had preachers, the disciples, come and say to him, this is the wrong way to do it. You just be quiet. He's busy. He's doing important things. So you're wrong in the way you're doing it. You know, that's fine if you're not blind, but he's blind. So he ignores the preachers and he ignores the issue that he may not be doing it just right. And he keeps yelling at Christ. And Christ is merciful. Do you ever let the fact that you realize that maybe you don't know exactly how to pray for a person. And then when you go to start to pray, do you ever have older Christians? Maybe one of the pastors in, in the church. Maybe me. You, you're discouraged by them and they say, ah, ha, I think you're doing it all wrong. And do you throw up your hands and say, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to pray for a person in a wrong way and I don't want to do that but in intercessory prayer when it's life and death you just say to the preacher I appreciate your advice but until I know anything better all I know is to do this and you keep crying out last example Mark chapter 15 verse 21 and it's the most extreme because it's not you know it's not the lack of information if I press through and touch his clothes. Would he heal a person like me? I never heard he did it to anyone else. That doesn't stop her. The preachers tell me to be quiet. I'm doing it wrong. That doesn't stop blind Bartimaeus. And in Matthew, uh, sorry, I believe that's Matthew 15, right? Yes, sorry, Matthew. My hand, my handwriting's scribbly. Matthew 15. Look at verse 21. Here is the woman, the mom, pleading for her child. So verse 21, she's not a Jew. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a pagan. Jesus went, verse 21, Matthew 15, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman, came from that region, came out and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Surely, if you grew up in a pagan area and you're crying out to the Jewish Messiah, she has the right language, and he hears you and pays no attention, I think that would knock about 99% of us out as prayers. Like, well, he heard me. He knew what I said, and he doesn't doesn't want to answer so I'll quit. But if your daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, there isn't any other option. So you can't quit. And so she continues. 
So it says, he did not answer her a word, verse 23, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away. So the preachers don't just discourage her. They say, Jesus, command her to go away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep out of the house of Israel. So it's just... He doesn't say, hey, I was sent to help the miserable. He says, I, hey, listen, disciples, I have been sent to the Israelites first, not to her kind. But she came and she begins to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs so a metaphorical way of saying, you're asking for things you've no right to ask for. I already explained. I already heard you and ignored you. And then I explained to my disciples, and I'm, I believe in the passage she's aware of what he said. I already explained to them, I haven't come to give any aid to Canaanites right now. That's not what the Father has me doing. And then she begs and says, but help me. And he says, you're asking for something that belongs to children and you're a dog. You're not one of the Jews. You're asking for what's not yours. I can't imagine a more discouraging response. God himself is talking, but he has not commanded her not to ask. And so she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great, and it shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed. How will we stand before him that talked to this woman? I expect she will be there. How will you explain to her our short, shallow, intercessory pleadings? And how easily we got turned aside with a few unanswered questions about sovereignty or what the specific thing I should pray is or maybe God has delayed. How will that sound when you see her? One last thing is that it is often that the, it's not just pride and it's not just unbelief. And it's not a misapplication of God's sovereignty that can kill intercessory prayer. There is also another category. And that is, we are sometimes confused about what to say. What do I say? Do I just keep saying, Lord, I pray you be with them? Or I, I pray you bless them? I mean, don't you ever feel like, you know, God doesn't need me to read the church list today and say the same two phrases. I think he could probably do all he wants to do without that. So why waste my time? So there is this other issue of informing yourself of what God wants us to pray. And that is seen in part in the prayers of Paul. Like I said, I'll send that to you. And I think that we've, we're running out of time. So we won't take time to run through examples. But if you were to take those verses that you'll get... Or you can go and do it for yourself and pull the prayers of Paul out of his letters. And you were be to begin to study them to understand 
Why does he pray this? What does he request? Are there, what are the arguments? Until it's not just a phrase you're going to repeat. So I'm going to pray for uh, Ron and Lena today. And I'm turning to 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Lord, I pray for Ron and Lena. And you read the Bible to God. Well, I don't think that that's really the best course. What if you, before the Lord, said, teach me to pray? Here's what Paul prayed. I want to understand this prayer. And as you're understanding it, and passage by passage, it takes some time. Little by little, the passages, the prayers of the Bible, you become so familiar with them that they change the way you think and the way you pray. And it becomes, in a sense, second nature to have at least some clarity of how ought I to pray for this person? And it reminds me of what Christ says in John 15, in verse 7, if my word abides in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If my word is coursing through your thoughts, then the Spirit will stir us as we pray, will help us to know how to pray, and God will attend those prayers. Again, we're not forcing God. There's no easy formula. But coming to God with vague statements of, well, just be with them, God. I don't think that really pleases the Lord. Not when he's given you so much. He doesn't expect you to have omniscience. We're still the child speaking to the adult. But we can come with a clear conscience that I have labored to understand how Paul followed Christ in what he asked for. Believers in particular. So I can take the church prayer list, just take that as our application, and for those families there, I can begin, my prayers for them can begin to be informed by these passages. And Christ will lead you step by step and teach you how to pray. 